hi, Anar. Happy, Happy Women in Translation Month. Oh my gosh, jinx. Happy Women in Translation Month. It's officially August. It's hotter than hell mm-hmm. here in Texas. And what a great time to stay indoors and read some great literature. Yes, there's wildfires just everywhere in Texas. It's a really weird, scary time, so it feels extra special to be able to dive into something that we're both really passionate about, and it's nice that we have Women in Translation Month in August, I think, because it's kind of like Christmas in December, where that sort of saves that dreary season from being so dreary. I feel like that's what Women in Translation does for us here in Texas. Um, At least it gets my spirits up. I completely (laughs) agree. I was reflecting on there's a special feeling that Women in Translation Month holds in me, and Christmas makes sense. I also feel like Poetry Month, and I think it's because both Poetry Month and Christmas, like, we give ourselves permission to indulge in what maybe we don't have the opportunity to make space for um, for the rest of the year. So it feels really special to be like, here's this massive stack of books And I mean, if you're anything like me, and I'm assuming Claire, you're like this as well, you're like to be read or your like nightstand pile is a little overwhelming. And you're like, where do I begin? Yes, absolutely. Whip month is just like, begin here. Yes, (laughs) that's exactly right. That's why I really love the intentionality of knowing that I already love to read women in translation, but then having, like you said, big permission, big excuse to go ahead and pull a bunch of things off my shelf that I haven't read yet, but have been meaning to, and make a little curated stack for the month. And I did that this month, and it felt really great, and I'm working my way through it, and it's delightful. I saw you post a photo of your stack, which we'll repost on our Instagram, and I was just like, so excited for you. Um, just I'm really excited to hear about how you're receiving those works. I know a lot of them, we've both expressed interest over time. And so it feels nice when someone else is reading a book that's on your list, because then I'm like, is it time? Is it now? <laughs> yeah, you get a sneak preview. <laughs> but yeah. Is there anything from that list that you had in your pile that really jumped out at you? Yeah. So a really cool book that was published in 2022 by World Poetry Books. And I got this at Malvern last year. Sad times, but so grateful for that space now and always uh, for introducing me to stuff that I never otherwise would have come across. And this book is called Cold Fire by a Chilean poet, Veronica Zondek. Mm-hmm. Cold Fire was translated by Catherine Silver. So we've got double women in translation there. It's a book length poem that is basically a meditation on the wind. Wow. And it's really beautiful so far. It's chaotic and strange and fragmentary and eco, eco surrealist uh, is a term that I'll go ahead and dredge back up from the archives because I have a feeling that's going to become relevant again later today. But yeah, I highly recommend Cold Fire by Veronica Zondek, a contemporary Chilean poet. And we're so lucky to have this in translation. 
Wow. Okay. Really, really excited for you to like finish that title and gather all of your thoughts. But but yeah, I appreciate you introducing eco-surrealism into, into our conversation today because I will be bringing a book that can only be described as eco-surrealism. I do want to let our listeners know that we have poetry for you today. I hope you did not expect anything else. It was the <laughs> obvious choice for, for both of us. Obviously, fiction is great. There's so much great women in translation fiction out there, but we just couldn't help ourselves. <laughs> yeah, and it really lends itself to the podcast, too. It's it's fun to be able to share a poem in its entirety. Um, yeah. So I'm really excited about what you brought, Anar. Do you want to go ahead and dive in? Absolutely. Okay, so if you are a longtime listener, you might recall a really incredible conversation that we had with host poet Julie Howd, Earth Day 2021. And what was really special about the conversation was that Julie introduced me and perhaps maybe you, Claire, as well. Yeah. To a term that I actually don't believe I've heard other people use, which is eco-surrealism. And in the list of eco-surrealist poets that Julie compiled for us was this poet Yi Lu, who wrote a collection of poetry titled Sea Summit, which was published by Milkweed Editions in 2015. And so I believe Claire immediately got her hands on this collection and eventually requested our local bookstore, Malvern Books at the time, to order it. And then eventually I got my copy. It sat on my to-be-read pile for a while, and boy, do I regret it. <laughs> um, it really is such an incredible collection, and... I would like to kind of unpack the term eco-surrealism with you, Claire. So Melissa Kwasny wrote this really incredible foreword for this collection, um, followed by a translator's note by the translator Fiona Shi Lorraine. And there's a bit of a push and pull as to how you would define this collection and how it's not quite like pastoral or like eco-poetry, because there's this other element in this work that brings the human self into these eco-poems. And so, like, there is this interrogation of how the speaker or how the audience or how the self disrupts their relationship with nature or how we connect or relate with the environment and then there's this other like one more step above that this like mind expanding or mind bending element to that where it's like you're like being pushed and pulled through time and there's a little bit of a a bending of like the fabric of existing and humanity that I think makes it just a bit more surreal yeah, I was going to say that sounds like where the surrealism comes in. These definitely do feel like they're rooted in nature, but it has some kind of artifice to it. It's like nature under the poet's microscope, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. where we're seeing these like disparate parts 
sort of isolated and it makes them strange. <laughs> yeah. There are these moments in these poems too where there's like a almost like a disembodiment or multi-subjectivity in which like you suddenly become the sea. Yes. And then it flips again and it really is just you have to you have to read it to believe it. Um and it has been a minute since I've read this collection, but it feels like not all of Yi Lu's poems in this book are really rooted to the lyric I. And so the perspective of the poems can often be a little disembodied or um, even disorienting because it's like, who is speaking in this poem? <laughs> if it's not the lyric I, the possibilities are endless, um, which I find really really interesting, especially for works in translation, because American poetry is very much rooted in the lyric eye. That's where we exist for the most part. So that's part of what's so refreshing, I think, about this collection to me. Totally. That is happening constantly. And what's even more exciting than this book existing is that it's like a really good collection. I think it's up to like 200 pages. Yeah. So you have a lot of poems. Um, I also want to mention this is a bilingual edition. So on the left side is Chinese. And you can read the original poems if if you're literate in Chinese. And on the right is the translation. And it's like such a great size. It's nice and like hefty. And it's just beautifully done. I love the cover. It's like such a great edition. Yeah, I love that bilingual nature of it as well. Even as a person who absolutely cannot read Chinese characters, A, it's beautiful to see. It's really lovely just to see what these poems looked like in their original form. And then B, it also can be a really fun, if you're feeling a little bit naughty, <laughs> it can be fun to just get your Google Translate app up and hover over with your camera and see what it produces and then compare that to the poems themselves. And that's a really great way to realize just how incredibly talented our translators really are. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <sighs> I agree with you. It's a fun experiment. <laughs> so ahead of reading two poems by Yi Lu. I would love to read the bios for Yi Lu and translator Fiona Shi Lorraine. Yi Lu is a theater scenographer who leads a parallel life as a poet. Born in 1956, she is the author of five books of poetry, including the award-winning titles Sea and Using Two Seas, her volume, Forever Lingering, was published by Culture and Arts Press in Beijing. Yi is known for her elegant and distilled lyrical voice as well as her ecological awareness. Her honors include the Hundred Flowers Award for Literature and other distinguished literary prizes from Fujian province. A theatrical stage and set designer at the People's Art Theater in Fujian, she lives in the southern coastal city of Fuzhou. So just based on reading her bio, we can go ahead and glean that this is a visual artist, yeah. image and color and set plays such a massive role in reading this work. Yeah. Um, I love multidisciplinary artists and being able to see the way that their work 
their life work bleeds into their poetry world. Yeah. There's an interesting parallel, too, in the way that a set designer, their main character is the backdrop. Their main character is the setting. And that's kind of an interesting parallel to the ecological awareness and the poetry and the sort of landscape of the poems being at the front and that human element often being more secondary. Yeah, that's really beautifully thought, beautifully expressed. I like that. (laughs) Um, And then our bio for our translator who translated this collection from Chinese, we are forever grateful for translators bringing work to mm-hmm. English or just to any language, translators doing any work at all, but we wouldn't otherwise have this collection in our hands today. Exactly. And that feels like a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> so Fiona Shi Lorraine writes and translates in English, French, and Chinese. Her new poetry collection, The Ruined Elegance, will be published by Princeton University in the Princeton series of Contemporary Poets. The author of two previous titles, My Funeral Gondola and Water the Moon, as well as several other translations of contemporary Chinese, French, and American poets, she is a Zhang harpist and an editor at Vif Editions. She lives in Paris, France. What a Renaissance woman. Yes, both the translator and the the poet are just so full of art. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think this is the way it's meant to be. Poets are meant to have other artistic mediums that they at least dabble in because that feeds the poetry. I love that. (sighs) Well, do you want to read us some of these gorgeous eco-surrealist poems, Anar? Yes. Without further ado, I'd love to read a couple of poems for y'all. One is at the very beginning of the book and one is towards the end. Um... I feel like they both capture major themes in this collection and can inspire you to get your own copy. (laughs) Yay. March Pasture. Did I block the surging moisture or mess up the barely stable order the world struggles to arrange? Its immensity standing in the pasture isn't relaxing in March. A bud bursts open, little by little. I want to hold the stem so it won't tremble. A thin, feeble gasping links to the sky. A butterfly that comes too soon stumbles like a drunk. I wave my hand. It turns upside down and disappears. But I can't stop the wind trampling all over. Creamy sunlight seems to pour itself into love. March pasture, heroic pains at vast heights, as if the whole river was flowing with tears. That's a really beautiful poem, Anar. Great choice. It really just... Here at the very beginning, did I block the surging moisture? Is like we're putting ourselves, the voice, the body into this portrait Mm. and asking, like, is my presence a disruption? 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of exactly what eco-poetics and yeah, eco-surrealism here is really trying to do. That's exactly, yeah. we get straight to the point with this poem. It's such a simple thought. Um, is my presence a disruption? But if everyone was earnestly asking that, things would be better. And mm-hmm. I do love that barely stable order and how the poem drops that in the second line, but then the rest of the poem then goes on to show what that looks like in really small, specific images, Mm -hmm. like the trembling stem that's linked to the sky and the butterfly Uh. that comes too soon and stumbles like a drunk. It's like (laughs) there is order to all of this, but it's just barely holding together. Mm -hmm. And the smallest thing can disrupt it. Stunning. (laughs) I really love this poem. It was so hard to choose, y'all, but... Gosh, the first like handful of poems that start this book out all really just capture these themes like so greatly. Um, but okay, I'll bring one more. Okay. And then I'll simmer down. Unless you think that was enough. I think another one would be awesome. Okay. It's hard to get a poet's a sense of a poet's voice with a single poem. Yeah, I love this upcoming poem titled Space of Drama. Because it does something that I really love in this book and in this poetry and in just poetry in general, which is kind of push you through a wormhole. Yeah. Like it does some really interesting things with with time and space, if that if I could say that. Yeah. <laughs> um so the next poem is titled Space of Drama. Word, phrase, period. A mountain stream, a lofty mountain range, a monastery. From far to near, abyss hangs in mid-sky, visible in all directions. A wave, cow toes before the ocean, mountain peaks buried under the sea. A blue sky emerges from bone joints. Souls breathe the stillness of the universe. Knife, rope, needle, blade fragments through the heart, square, avenue, hospital, jail, sealed dream, weaving through thoughts, spurring ancient joys and high mountains, high waters. Towering sorrow, white linen swishing wide creases, connecting tides of wind. Platform, stairs, wall, sun, moon, Milky Way can be toppled and rebuilt. A new chaos waiting for a shiny crack, a puppet sheds tears. An hour exceeds 10,000 years. The hall lights up. Curtain call. Spectators yet luminous. You can really feel the theater in this. And I mean, it's called Space of Drama, so (laughs) 
I think that's intentional, but I love the way that this poem is so fragmented Mm -hmm. and distorted. And then it's almost like a distortion of time and space is that's what's happening on the stage. Mm -hmm. I love that. It really marries Yilu's passion for nature and the stage Mm -hmm. in such a beautiful way. This felt like a really good representation of the poet herself. Um, oh, it's just so beautiful. When when I read A Puppet Sheds Tears, I was like, this is my poem that I'm going to bring. <sighs> That's so good. I love that line, too. I do love that whole stanza, actually. Mm-hmm. Platform, stairs, wall, sun, moon, Milky Way. I automatically have this image of... Sun, Moon, Milky Way as painted backdrops Mm. on like a stage for a child's play or something. And then perfectly after that can be toppled and rebuilt, both Mm -hmm. like referring to the stage element of it, but also the universe itself. Amazing. Well, I was so delighted to bring these poems as a gift to you, Claire, and to our listeners. Um, Yes. Please support this poet and this press and request it to be purchased by your local bookstore, by your local community library, um, tweet about it, except don't tweet. Twitter's disgusting. Um, Just tell your friends, (laughs) text your friends and see them in person and celebrate being fleshy, disruptive little beans. Little puppets. (laughs) Little puppets. (laughs) Shed a tear. Shedding tears. Oh, Claire, you brought a really incredible poet for us today. Would you like to jump in? Yes, I would love to. Alejandra Pizarnik is someone that we seem to talk about a lot, but I'll go ahead and give us a little bio so we know what's up before we dive into these poems. Mm-hmm. Alejandra Pizarnik was a leading voice in 20th century Latin American poetry. Born in Avellaneda to Russian Jewish immigrants, Pizarnik studied literature and painting at the University of Buenos Aires and spent most of her life in Argentina. She died in Buenos Aires of an apparent overdose at the age of 36. And this collection is actually It's a very slim volume titled The Last Innocence slash The Lost Adventures, put out by Ugly Duckling Press in 2019. And it's actually her second and third collections. So those must have been chapbook sized then to both fit in this little slender volume. And one interesting thing I learned from the introduction is that Alejandra actually of course, wrote one book before this, her first collection, but she disowned it after after (laughs) some time had passed and completely changed her writing style. So this little double collection is really the beginning of Alejandra Pizarnik as a poet, as we know her. I haven't read that first book of hers. I I don't know that it's in translation anywhere since she disowned it. But, um, but yeah, this is kind of her beginnings, her origins as as a poet. This book was translated by Cecilia Rossi. Cecilia Rossi was born in Buenos Aires. Her translations of Pizarnik received first prize in the John Dryden Translation Competition and other honors. 
She is a senior lecturer in literature and translation at the University of East Anglia. Um, yeah, so for those who may not have encountered her work before, I'll just say that it's quite dark and quite mysterious, very, very much a poet of obsession. Pizarnik, she'll have these recurring words that are recurring ideas that are just woven throughout all of her work. And those include death and loneliness and womanhood. So she can be sometimes a tough poet to, to really be immersed in. But I feel like this little collection is a great place to start if you want to read her. And I recommend that people do because she has an incredible simplicity to her style in which for me, it feels like walking into a painting a little bit, like a, one of those paintings that's just like a barren landscape, but then it has just a few objects in it. And so it's like you're in an empty vacuum looking at these very simplistic objects in front of you and they are in really sharp relief. Um, that's the sort of feeling of being in her in her work for me. And while she had probably some some depression and and that comes through, there's also this really interesting psyche in her poems that is struggling and fighting against it. And I actually find that in certain moments really luminous and really beautiful. And yes, it's it's sad that she she passed so early in her life and we only have a few collections of hers, but it makes them all the more special. So I really love her. Wow, Claire, you really have described exactly what makes Alejandra Pisarnik special. And I love that you described kind of the landscape of experiencing Pisarnik as like a poet, but as a person. Thank you. <laughs> Barren and a bit sparse of a landscape um, with these little nuggets planted everywhere. I just, I love that so much. It's the way it feels to me. And truly, she did talk about her own work and moving away from that first book, which I'm assuming had a little more excess to it and maybe a little bit more complexity in the language. Mm -hmm. And she intentionally moved away from that and wanted accessibility to be a really key feature and the language to just be immediately consumable. And I don't always think that's a great thing, but in her work, I think it's a great thing. And the intentionality with which she made that stylistic choice as a poet, I think it really comes through. I'm going to read a couple poems for you, Anar, if you're ready. But I want to start with the poem that appears later in the book, and then we'll go back to the front um, for tonal reasons. <laughs> um, I don't want to leave us on a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> so easy to do with Pizarnik. Um Yeah, you gotta watch out. But whenever you're ready, please grace us. Okay. This poem is titled Ashes. We have spoken words. Words to wake the dead. Words to start a fire. Words in which we can sit and smile. We have created the sermon of bird and sea, the sermon of water, the sermon of love. We have knelt down and worshipped phrases long as a star's sigh, phrases like waves, phrases with wings 
we have invented new names for wine and laughter, for looks and their terrible paths. I am alone now, like a delirious miser on her mountain of gold, throwing words toward heaven, but I am alone and cannot tell my love those words I live for. Wow. That is a powerful, a powerful poem. I am alone now. Yeah, it's on theme with loneliness, but in yeah. a way that feels to me actually a little bit like it's almost relishing in it, being the miser on the pile of gold throwing words at heaven. Mm -hmm. um, I feel a little bit of, apart from the depths of sadness, I feel a little bit of rage in there, and I like that. <laughs> yeah, last we talked about Pizarnik. Um, we had paired with Alice Rahone, and I think that we were in just the abyss of grief. And mm -hmm. Alejandro Pizarnik is someone that has brought language to my personal journey with grief and the resulting feeling of disconnection and loss and depression and loneliness. And this is kind of just like... I feel like is a portrait of someone in the throes of that, but I also kind of feel like there's a corner that is being turned. I think that the rage that you're sensing is this kind of almost like understanding of like, there isn't a confusion as to where she is in this journey. We, we know that, you know, I am alone now like the delirious miser on her mountains of gold, throwing words towards heaven, but I am alone and cannot tell my love those words I live for. Um, yeah, there isn't this, like, complete disassociation. Right. There is this, like, claiming. There's clarity in this poem that's got an edge to it, and I love that. I love that it's also somewhat of an ars poetica, or at least a meditation on poetry and language as well, in that yeah. the ashes of the title, I would say, is related to language. We go from, you know, almost these incantations or spells, speaking words to wake the dead, to start a fire, words in which we can sit alone and smile. It's like we're trying everything. <laughs> um, and none of these spells are working. Yeah. And then the spells turn to sermons of the sea and water and love. And then we're worshiping phrases and then inventing new names. And then after all that is when I am alone now throwing words toward heaven. And that feels like a real distinct reality to me of a person who has a love affair with language and trying to find ways in which your words, your poetry, your writing can connect with others can feel like this sometimes. And then in the end, it's you in heaven. Even your love can't, the, 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 maybe the one you love can't really participate mm -hmm. in it. It's that intimate of a, of a relationship and that tangled. I don't know. I always like to find a way poems can be about poetry, so maybe I'm reading that into it, but uh, I think there's definitely a language element here that I find really fascinating. Yeah, I when I first read this poem, I definitely, in preparation for this podcast, 
felt like it was in kinship with some of Yi Lu's work. And the more I sat with it was like, this is definitely a poem that is in conversation with language. So considering it as like an Ars Poetica, like definitely makes sense. And I agree that like, you know, in the theme of loneliness, language is how we connect with one another. But I'm sure that everyone has experienced moments in their lives where they can't put a word to the way that they're feeling Mm -hmm. or a thought or an idea to like what they're experiencing. And so, yeah, there is this like wonderful desperation to this where it's like there is a moment in which you have to be alone with Mm -hmm. your singular human experience and create a language that suits you and hope that like whatever it is that you worship can at least find a way to connect with you yeah. um, on those terms. So what a gorgeous poem. Yeah, I'm so glad you liked it. And I, I also felt that kinship between Yi Lu and Alejandra's work in this book. Um, yeah. And I, I'd like to take us back to the beginning of the book. Uh, one of my favorite poems is the first poem in this collection, and it has a slightly higher note that it ends on. Uh, and it's titled Salvation. The island vanishes. And again, the young woman scales the wind and discovers the death of the prophet bird. Now it's the vanquished fire. Now it's the flesh, the leaf, the stone lost in the source of torment, like the mariner in the horror of civilization, purifying the fall of night. Now the young woman finds the mask of infinity and cracks the wall of poetry. Wow. She's definitely talking about poetry in this poem. Um, <laughs> I, I want to read a little snippet from the translator's note in the back. She talks about how Alejandra talked about making poems instead of writing poems and that that really speaks to the craftsmanship of her poetry and that Cecilia Rossi, the translator, likes to think about translation as a craft and a making of of translation rather than doing of translation. And um, she speaks about the last line of this poem, cracks the wall of poetry. The young woman finds the mask of infinity and cracks the wall of poetry. And she says, I remember that initially I'd translated that last line quite literally and breaks the wall of poetry. I thought some more about this and in the end opted for cracks the wall of poetry because I felt that the poet had finally cracked the code as it were. She was now writing the poetry that she had always aspired to write. Wow. And for that to be the first poem that we read in the collection that is not disowned um yes is really beautiful i agree that that feels like it's a beautiful place to start in this collection that 
this is not just a young poet who had been just messing around. Like, I think her obsessions in poetry extend to just her actual life. And I think she was obsessed with poetry and she thought and thought about how she wanted to be as a poet and how she wanted to write. I get a thrill out of that, knowing that each of these poems was, though they're sparse and slim and somewhat, the language is somewhat simple, that every single word was, and every line break was agonized over um, until it was crafted to the kind of, maybe not perfection, but the sort of shape that the poet wanted. I just really love that. I like that. Yeah. And you know, The Last Innocence, Anark, the title of that, her title, it comes from A Season in Hell. Oh. I thought you might enjoy that little tidbit that Alejandra was also reading Rambo uh, at the time that she wrote these poems, which makes oh. total sense. <laughs> you know, that's something that I was going to be looking up after our podcast here. I'm very, I was very curious, um, as a, another person obsessed with poetry, like... Here we have someone who's deliberately aware of the work that they're putting out in the world and perhaps the legacy that they hope to leave behind. And yeah, if you're reading a lot of poets and thinking about that, I, I was really curious to see if there was a list of, of poets that Alejandra was obsessed with. Yeah, um, that's the main poet they talk about her engaging with in the introduction to this collection. But I would also love to read that list. Yeah. Uh, there's also George Trackle is another poet that she uses a line of his as an epigraph to The Lost Adventures. So there's another wow. another little breadcrumb on the trail. <laughs> but yeah, that's what I have. Ugh, Pizarnik is so good. Thanks for bringing some poems, Claire. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, what a, what a great pairing. I, I have a feeling that Pizarnik just pairs well with everyone for some reason because we said the same about Pizarnik and Alice Rahone. Yeah, she did something right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, her work really resonates through time. I can tell that she's one of those poets who was yeah. thinking with with an eye towards eternity, so to speak. And yeah, I feel like her themes will be eternally relatable. Yeah. Mm. But that wasn't such a sad note. I was expecting a <laughs> devastating note at the end of reading some Pizarnik. No, not so bad. A poem titled Salvation about cracking the code of poetry. Mm. <laughs> it may not be like cheesy happy, but it definitely feeds my soul. <laughs> yes. Okay. I'm sad to say that maybe this is the end of our podcast, but... Please let us know what you're reading for Wit Month, and we hope that you continue to celebrate women in translation, translated works throughout the rest of your year, but now you know that you have one solid month a year to really dig in. And again, gratitude to our translators for bringing such incredible literature to the English language and allowing us to, to really sit with some poets that are life-changing. Yeah. Definitely. It's such a gift. Well, thank you so much, Anar. This was a blast. Thank you, Claire. And listeners, happy reading. Bye. Bye. Bye.